You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program at Inforum with the Commonwealth Club. As was previously mentioned, I'm Anjali and I sit on the board of Inforum. And this afternoon, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with chef Marcus Samuelson. You may know him as a renowned world chef, a media personality, an author, um, and so much more. And today, we will be in conversation with him about his new book, The Rise. And um, for those in the audience, as was also reiterated, um, if you have questions, uh, feel free to ask it in the chat on YouTube or the comments section on Facebook. We will try to get through as many questions as we possibly can. So now, without further ado, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chef. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm in my restaurant here in Red Rooster in Miami in Overtown that we just opened through the pandemic. And I'm one more life experience richer to open a restaurant I've done many times, but I've never opened one during the pandemic. So I'm learning that. That's absolutely incredible that you opened a restaurant in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I thought that we'd start off the conversation a little bit about your background, just so people get to know a little bit about you. But I wanted to do it in the context of one of the chapters of your book uh, called Migration. Um, so you are this, you're just this incredible sort of like epitome of the American dream, right? You start off in a hut in Ethiopia, the kindness of a nurse gets you to, um, you know, an adopted family. And from there you are taken in, you, um, train with some of the best in European culinary institutes and you make your way over to New York. And, uh, you know, from there, I guess the rest is history with all your incredible achievements um, from the Red Rooster and, and so on. But I wanted to ask, um, talk a bit about how migration has played a part in your personal narrative and how it's informed your voice as a chef. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating that that's what the highlight that you take out of that journey I have completely different highlights, right? <laughs> uh, and so much about that journey, uh, for me, it's about no one has ever done anything alone. First of all, the fact that, and also sometimes the worst that ever happened can also be the best that ever happened, right? I was born with tuberculosis. My mother had tuberculosis, my sister. My mother walked and took, their in, took us into a hospital my mother passed away but even in that hospital if I wouldn't have been lucky enough and the goodness of that nurse I wouldn't be here with you today right and those journeys in Europe was also led by mentors amazing mentors that saw something in me that at that time I probably didn't see myself and also the fact that I had my parents, I had parents in Sweden that believed in my journey and supported my journey, even if they didn't know food necessarily as a restaurant. Right? They, so I, I just think about that as it takes a village. I had that village. 
you need luck. I was fortunate enough to have that luck. But then when it comes to America, I also think that I'm the intersection, I'm sitting on the intersection between lawmaking is changed, right? Both in the sense of immigrants and black people. Without the civil rights movement, which led then to all the different changes in the laws for people of color, but also for immigrants, right? So there's so many people that plowed generationally ahead of me for me to be able to sit here and enjoy the fruits. So for me, it's with that trampoline and background that I enter the world, right? So my work has to be added value, whether it's the rice or whether it's red rooster. So I think about it from that perspective and that goes into my work, my decision. That's amazing. And I know that in your book, you note that food traditions are a mix of what you've carried and what you've picked up. And you actually note very beautifully in a passage, you say, I think about how recipes change as people move. They must. No matter how much we bring to our destination, something gets left behind. I, I find that so brilliantly put together because, you know, a question that, that comes to mind is how did you ultimately find your voice as a chef blending these different cuisines? And how do you decide what gets left and what gets carried? Well, it's also a different time, right? Like, I think what's happening now, the last five years in food journalism and cooking is the most important, interesting work uh, for a long time. Because when I started cooking, the cooking that counted, mattered, was not just European food. It was only French food. So <laughs> right. chefs from all over the world has to unlearn their own rituals or were constantly told that that not that food doesn't matter, right? Maybe Italian food matter, but it was traditionally just French food. And over the last 10 years, we, and through in, internet, we really have much, much, much more voices, uh, whether it's Japanese, whether it's Southeast Asian, whether it's African. And there's these voices that comes alive, right? And uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write The Rise, because... In terms of black people, the contribution that black people have done to American food is incredible. And the acknowledgement is just, uh, it's just hasn't been fair, hasn't been just like many things in terms of black culture and black history. So if you look at, you can't talk about American food without going through West Africa, right? There are right. five original cuisines that comes out of the African-American experience, low country, barbecue, Southern food, uh, Creole, and Cajun. Those are all cuisines that are part of America, but all contributed by African-American experience. So yet people know so little about where does this food come from? How did it get to our country? And what impact has it had on our culture? And I think it's extremely important that we go back and think about the authorship. We create real memories. And therefore, we build aspirations. If the authorship is not acknowledged, right, we then don't know how to value it. And if we don't have the right value proposition and the authorship to it, we can't have the correct memories to these experiences. And therefore, the aspirations for as a black person, does food matter? Where is my role in food? Can I own something? So, so this is an extremely important journey that we're on. And um, yeah, it's an important time. 
Yeah, Let, let's talk about that a little bit more, that concept of authorship, and let's dive into the rise itself. So you showcase 150 recipes from Black culinary talent, and it's really the story of how Black culinary culture has not only helped shape, but as you rightly point out, actually been the fuel of American cuisine. And, you know, technically it's a cookbook, but, and, and for the record, I, I noticed that it had gone number one on Amazon cookbooks and it's, it's done amazing. So but te- technically it's a cookbook, but it's been described as history, biography. I saw gumbo for the soul was something that somebody called it, which was incredible. And, and the New York Times actually called it a tool for change which is incredible for a cookbook. So how do you describe this book and and what does it mean to you? Well, it means a lot because, you know, my book takes four or five years to make and it's important to have something to say and stay open to move towards changes and so on. But I hope it will mean something for the next generation of chefs besides my, you know, what it does for me because I think this is essentially not just a book for black people, about black people. This is an American cookbook that we all can learn from and we can learn about the incredible black chefs that are in the neighborhood where you live, wherever that might be, right? How can I support black chefs? And once you do that, you start to understand a little bit more about America's cuisine and American chefs food in general. And, you know, I had some amazing collaborator, uh, Yuanda, that, made the majority of the recipes, and Jamosa, that was a photographer, and of course, Osai, my co-writer and co-author, and we all brought something, and Michael from the publisher that believed in this project, you know, and that's really what is this. If we're going to rewrite and, and really give the authorship to where it's due in American food, it takes partnerships from all aspects, right? And in the the reader need context to understand it. So it's a reimagining, you know, and, 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 and this is, when I started Red Rooster, the why I started Red Rooster in Harlem was because I really believe 10 years later what's going to come out of it, that black chefs can have an incredible restaurant in their communities. We don't have to go outside our community. The rise, in many ways, is a follow-up to that to say, hey, to understand black food is layered, it's complicated, it's delicious, just like our journey, because it's been underrepresented uh, in terms of traditional media. But blackness is vast. You can be African-American like myself, coming from Ethiopia via Sweden, or you can be African-American like someone like Greg Godet that has Haitian roots and via New York and living in Portland. Or you can be African-American like Naisha Arrington, that is Korean, Asian-American, and African-American. So black food is not monolithic. It's not one thing. It has so many different rivers to it. Uh, And we do need, you know, many different entryways to talk about race and culture. This is the most delicious one through food. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I and I really appreciated that part of the cookbook, which was really highlighting that as you as you say, black food is not one monolithic thing. And um, 
you even had like an incredible story of, of Tony Tipton Martin in your book, um, where she says in the book that her food editors would actually correct her recipes when she wanted to do something that was more than soul, uh, soul food or mac and cheese. And so, you know, that that was crazy to me to to hear stories like this. Yes. And it's important that we have leaders like Tony, like we have leaders like Jessica Harris. But I think about the lineage of the incredible African-American women in this country that's been in food and been both activists and advocates. Uh, you think about Leah Chase that, you know, 96 years old, owned her restaurant from the 40s, right? And she was both an advocate and an activist. Uh, when people needed to get the black vote, they needed to go through Duke Chase. Um, she served, she was, her restaurant was illegal for years because she served both black and white people. You think about people like Safir White that worked for Lyndon B. Johnson and he trusted her more than he trusted uh, a lot of people in Congress, right? So black women has always been the core of what kept neighborhoods together, what kept our food collective, like these rituals that eventually became the recipes. And I think it's fascinating to talk about it and imagine it in a day like this, when, when I think about someone like Stacey Abraham, that completely changed the narrative of our country on a day like this that so we own so much depth and value to black women in this country and for years and decades have been so often underrepresented in terms of storytelling in terms of media and i just think about it from cooking we wouldn't be nowhere with american food if it wouldn't be for black women absolutely absolutely so on that note, I mean, there were probably so many incredible folks from the community that you could have highlighted. How did you think about including the folks that you did in this cookbook? Well, that's a great question. It, you know, first of all, it's not a list. It's not like if you didn't make this list, you're not in the rice. Uh, yeah. And that's very, very important because we could have done the rice for edition four and five on it because it's that many incredible people. <laughs> but... I wanted to show the plural that we are many and we are all over the country and not just chefs, right? Someone like Donna Pierce that was the editor for the Chicago Tribune in Chicago. Um, that we in all over the country, some chefs have worked with me at Red Roosters, but the majority have not. So we needed to tell Southern stories, immigrant stories, someone like Tavel Bristol-Joseph in Austin, for example. Uh, there is one recipe where you hear and you see anonymous chef, and that is a black chef with Mexican heritage uh, that talks about the intersection between being a legal immigrant, but also being black in Mexico on his food journey. So it's it's so much larger than you really can imagine. And it was important to have chefs that represented all aspects. Home cooks, some are professional chefs, the majority, but some are also home cooks. Absolutely. Did you find that in highlighting these stories that you learned anything about yourself as a Black chef? Because really the whole theme of this is what does it mean to be a, a 
somebody in the culinary space who is black and what do those contributions mean? And I'm just curious if it elucidated anything in your own journey, because I've seen interviews of you in the past where you said to be a chef is to like understand myself more. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate that. And I, I find being a chef is you got to stay true to your curiosity. You got to be curious because every day there, there are changes that are happening in our environment and so on. Right. And when you're a black chef with a platform, you also sit on responsibility and a privilege. So I am very cautious and take me a long time about what book am I going to do? What stories do we want to share and tell? How do we want to broadcast this? So I learned a ton, you know, and um, it was fascinating to me to work with, you know, chefs like Chef Michael that is in Nigeria now, for example, in Lagos. Where is food going to go? Where is fine dining going to go? Maybe Africa is the next destination for fine dining. And then in the middle of this, of course, when we thought we were done with the book, COVID hit. So that, those first pages where I didn't know what would happen with my industry, I didn't know what would happen with my family, it really ripped my day-to-day -day structure out. And so I knew the book took a completely different shape. And we closed Red Rooster for six months and became a community kitchen and served over 200,000 meals in our restaurant. So those are experiences that you can't undo. And uh, so to work on the rise during the pandemic, but also during this nationwide big conversation around race and culture during this era that we've been in is almost overwhelming, but also it sharpens your pen and makes you realize you have to launch the book. You have to release the book. And I don't think it's ever been a more fascinating time to be a black chef in this country. Yeah, incredible. I wanted to touch a little bit on the on the COVID piece you mentioned there for a second, because um, I had read something like, you know, the National Restaurant Association forecasts that 240 billion in restaurant sales will be lost this year. And I wanted to, to highlight that, um, you particularly um, were able to open Red Rooster Overtown in the in the midst of all of this, while while it, it's just a testament to sort of the immigrant mentality in you as a chef. And so, I wanted to get your thoughts on how folks can maybe look to your example um, or any advice you can give them, particularly folks of color in this industry who are being disproportionately affected um, by what is happening. Well, I was, I, was, I was very fortunate. We started, and then we had to shut for COVID again. And then we served the community here in Miami. And then we just said, no, we're going to open. We're going to open before the holidays. And um, I'm very fortunate. We have, a, we have a team that supported me. But also, um, it determined me even more to open. And we started a fund called Black, Food, uh, Black Business Matters that to help other Black uh, owned BIPOC businesses, food businesses that we raised a lot of money for that we're going to uh, give out grants to. And I just think, again, like I, I am extremely privileged. Um, I have many opportunities to um, get revenue stream from, whether it's from books or whether it's from media. And But it is, it did come down to that immigrant mentality of say, hey, 
uh, I'm not going to stop. I have to navigate through this. I have to pivot. And opening the restaurant and finishing the rice was also documentation to my son, right? He's only four. But when he's 14, 15, and, you know, this is we just went through a historical year, I want Zion to be able to know that we did work through tough times. Our family did work through a very difficult time, but still we were able to launch a book or I was able to launch the podcast this moment with my friend. Um, so it's important to, through all of this, to, to open things because you're sending a message to the world that, hey, we're going through something, but you can't, you can't fight through it. And it's also job creation, right? Closing Red Rooster Rovertown meant that I had to say, say it was 90 employees that didn't get a job. So opening it means something for the 90 employees that got their job back. It's meaningful. Incredible. So uh, I know you mentioned your son, Zion, and I was curious, do, does he or maybe your wife have a favorite recipe from, from the book at all? Or, or even maybe just a, a fun recipe you guys have been making together as a family during uh, COVID? Yeah. So Zion loves to uh, he cook with me or run into the refrigerator and just grab vegetables. And <laughs> right now it's we're in Miami, it's sort of beautiful tomatoes and, you know, the season's it's very different than in New York and so on. But then he doesn't like to eat it. He just wants to like, <laughs> he's a typical guy, just wants to like mess it up and, and hit the <laughs> carrots and stuff like that. But, uh, and pasta is fascinating for him. If, so we have, we call it Sasa's pasta in the, in the book where we take actually an Ethiopian Dorawat stew, a chicken stew that my wife and I make that, is comes from my tribe and uh you know it's a spicy chicken stew then the next second day we fold it in with some rigatoni and he just zion like a lot of kids are fascinated by the shape of spaghetti that is so you know one shape and then you boil it and then it gets soft and so he loves stuff like that i've said that was, that's his most fun but so like this morning we were supposed to cook and he was so excited cracking eggs and just getting excited and then I'm like, okay, let's eat. Not excited at all. He moved on to something else. That is so funny. Well, at least you know you have a, a budding chef and you can eat you can eat the, his food. So you'll have lots of food for the family. <laughs> um, was curious also, any insider tips for, for people who buy the book? You know, like is there a recipe they should start out first with? How should they how should they navigate this book when they're opening it for the first time? Well, I think it's uh Bring, bring your family together, cook together. But I would probably start with Miss Leah Chase's gumbo because uh, there's so much about the linear between Africa and New Orleans. You know, it's right there in that recipe and her story is absolutely amazing. But also love some of those recipes that because there's stories in there that are incredible. Um, Chef Eric Castell worked 25 years at Le Bernardin, three-star Michelin, relatively unknown story outside the industry, but an amazing chef. And that's, you know, so his food is, he worked in France, he's French Caribbean, and his wife is Japanese. So we have everything from scallop with the soy, soy beurre blanc, to a wonderful sort of tatar that sort of has his um, French um, heritage. But I do think that, you know, the book 
whatever you think the food's going to be, don't come in with a set idea. Because once you add blackness and Africa to it, our journeys are so vast. So I, just come in completely open and, and read and cook and laugh and cry and <laughs> eat delicious food. That's the best way to go into it because there's so many great recipes. The pantry, you might learn about new things like igusi seeds, which are Nigerian watermelon seeds that are toasted, that are absolutely delicious, something almost like a pumpkin seed, for example. You know, food is also vocabulary that you can learn, and you got to sort of go through that awkwardness to learn almost like a new language. But once you enter it, it's so exciting. That's amazing. Um, I wanted to touch on a little bit of the the moment that we're in. I know we, we touched on it a little bit, but um, I mean, you started this book almost four years ago with this idea, which is almost... I mean, it was almost prescient because today it's like there there's this moment of Black Lives Matter and all of that. But four years ago, even as recent as that, you know, be, to have that idea and to say, this is the story I want to tell. What does it mean to now have this book at this moment in time, you know, we, even with a new political administration and all of that that's happening and and how should people think of food, maybe not only just as food, but in the context of, of history and all the complexity around it? You know, the beautiful thing about America is that it's, it normally leans in the better way. It's, it's, it might be a difficult way and process to get there, but it's kind of correct itself. And I do think that this moment, maybe we had to go through this moment as a country in order to get the potential first female Black, Asian, <laughs> and African-American president in 2024, right? Amazing. You know, it's, yep. so, so there is, it's not our journey. There's not a linear, it's not, it's never easy. And it's never what you thought it would be, right? And if any moment has taught us that, it's this moment right here, right? And as a black chef, you never think about when is a good time to tell a story. It's always the good time to share a broader story about culinarians, I feel, because without telling the black story, you can't tell America's stories about food, right? And we've always had this escapism of saying, European food is better than our food. If we start loving our food, all of our food in America, and understand it better, think about what's going to happen with tourism. We, we, you go to Memphis and understand it in a completely different way. If we can go to a place like Overtown, Detroit, Harlem, with the same open-mindedness as we go to Tuscany or Sicily, for example, right? We would spend our money differently. We would look at the people differently. And we would come together as collective. I think a great way where I would love to get food to at some point is how America's relationship with music. You can't talk about American food without African-American experience, whether it's gospel, R&B, rock and roll, hip hop, trap, you, you name it, or, you know, whatever, funk. But it's all detailed. And if you write a song, it took a long time, but... It's now acknowledged, right? So the authorship to the songwriter is now being acknowledged. And also, American pop culture, it's understood that it was built by all America, Black America as well, you know? 
and it's documented both in movies, in videos, in through records. And I hope one day that American food, black food, can have its same journey as music, because then it wouldn't be as awkward. It would be natural to talk about it. And we would know who the people that created this, and we can actually learn to appreciate the people that are behind the curtain so often. Yeah, that is one thing that you do highlight in the book. I mean, you say that Italian food became something that was so popular in American homes, and it it was largely, you know, lots of non-Italians making Italian food. And similarly, you have like kimchi has kind of arisen as as something that is, you know, in popular kind of culture. So how does the the full scope of the African diaspora in terms of, of culinary talent get to a place that that becomes, you know, akin to, to, to those? And do you think that happens in your lifetime? <laughs> yes, it happens in our lifetime. And but, uh, yes, but I, it's such a good question. But food travels in a couple of different ways, right? Either through massive population and immigration, let's say China and India. Let's just say that. Yeah. Or big, and this is important, trading. Let's say Japan, right? We didn't know about Japanese food in this country before after the Second World War, when after the war, when we, through the war and horrible history, but we started to trade with Japan. It wasn't aid. If we sent aid to country, we always expect it to be cheap and all the products to be cheap. If we trade, once we buy Toyota, Sony, there's another level of respect and aspiration for the country, right? And so it's linked to our journey to slavery. It's linked to our journey of how we send aid to Africa, but we trade with Japan, for example. Yeah. So it's, and then tourism. And tourism is built up through aspiration, through traditional media. So again, when people say, oh, go to Italy, go to Spain. Well, I'll say, go to Memphis, go to uh, <laughs> Atlanta, uh, go to Harlem. So if you build up this anticipation, you will then also have a tourism that is now willing to spend. And again, part of building Red Rooster was that I wanted the tourists to get off the tour bus, get into the restaurant, walk around in Harlem, and spend time and money in a way that we do in other parts when they go to Europe, for example. So how black food and experiences and how we learn to experience appreciate us as a country, we can't fully do that unless we look at these experiences and these stories are told in a way that glorifies this. Otherwise, the aspirations are not, not built up correctly. So it's a, it's a very layered, complicated, sometimes connected to loss. And I, I give you an example in, in, in the BIPOC space. Chinese food was considered, is always considered should be cheap and Japanese food expensive. That is all connected to the loss, how we treated Chinese Americans and the Chinatowns and who did the labor. And it's not correct. It's not right. Well, well the more you understand about Japanese food, it's also 50, 60% of its roots come from China anyway. So it's mm. very, very complicated. And, but I do think we're heading in the right direction and social media and more gatekeepers, so to speak, and more storytelling through more people. Uh, it's a very important part of this process. 
Wonderful. I wanted to also get your thoughts just on fusion cooking in, in general, because I'm sure you've seen that concept evolve throughout your career, what it means to, to um, be part of that movement. And, you know, how do you think about keeping that authenticity of some of the cultures that are displayed while innovating on kind of new, new concepts? And, and how do you see fusion as a sort of genre, if you will, kind of evolving? Well, I think it's about acknowledgement, you know, like every person has a different journey. And, and if you and I would taste something, we would have different experiences. And I would be drawn to something that maybe you wouldn't be drawn to. Right. And as chefs, we're the same. So, for example, I love Japanese food. I went to Japan as a teenager. I cooked there in my 20s and 30s. Uh, when you look at me and in my name, there's nothing that tells you that I should do that. Right. But so in, so. When I think about a dish, I think about it through those building blocks very often. So, you know, people can come and fall in love and understand something in a very personal way. As long as you then document and honors first your own passion, but then honors and acknowledge the people who got you there. So if you got something from a person, then you have to acknowledge that person, whether that's your uncle, auntie, or a writer, right? So I think I cannot tell uh, another chef what he or she should be passionate about. Some people want to just cook their journey where they lived and it's their family's recipes. Other people, you know, for years we were anonymous chefs and we only cooked French food and we were black people cooking French food, right? So now since people have traveled and there's more exposure, um, the next 10 to 15 years will be different. I think we're, it's good that we document this in a different way. But as young chefs, you should learn as much as possible. You should cook the food that you're passionate about uh, because that's the only way you're going to stay curious and be passionate about the business. I love it. So going to start wrapping up some of the questions here as we move into audience questions. But had just a few more questions for you. Um, one is just, you know, you've had this incredible legacy, James Beard Awards to cooking at Obama state dinners. I mean, you've probably done it all. So kind of like what's next for you? Where can people find you at? I know you've got a documentary. Like, yeah, tell us, tell us all about that. Yeah, I mean, on social media is probably the easiest. Marcus Cooks. Uh, uh, and then, you know, I... I'm very proud of the fact that we did open the restaurant here in Overtown. It's a very dear community to me. It took us five years to open the restaurant, but it's worth it. Uh, so I'm going to go back and forth between New York and Miami. And I, I've devoted my whole life to cooking. I've cooked since I was 17 years old and professionally, and I love it. And I'm more curious and passionate about food today than I was than I started. So um, I want to I wanna help young young black chefs um, and mentor more uh, as much as I can. And I want to make sure that, um, you know, we're telling diverse stories because America is the country that can tell these stories. Because when we tell it, other countries are looking, watching, and it will trickle down to their uh, local situations as well. So I do think it's a very, very important journey we're on. And I also feel so privileged to be part of a community that I can pick up the phone and, you know, 
speak to Nina Compton or talk to someone amazing uh, like Eduardo Jordan or speak to an elderly, you know, like Jessica Harris about, you know, what, what was it before my generation, you know what I mean? So it's a privilege and then speak to someone like Tiana G that is just 22, 24 years old. Uh, so when you're in that sweet spot, when you can look ahead of you and behind you, it's your job to provide. And I feel like very much like I want to set stages for young chefs and have them realize their dream. Uh, uh, you know, that's, that's a exciting journey to be on. So on that note of um, helping young chefs, because um, I know you're you're super passionate about it. I I read that one thing that you did before you opened up your first restaurant was you actually wrote down, "I will open my I will open a restaurant." It was sort of like a manifesting kind of practice. Um, what would you tell young chefs that you know have kind of the same dreams and aspirations as you do in terms of like the process of like getting yourself in that mentality? Well, I would. Speak on it. Say, 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 say it to your family. Say it to your friends, and then show up. If there is a great chef in your neighborhood or you're out, you know, close to your right to your city, go to her or him and stage. Um, speak in your local schools or, or community colleges because you don't ever know who's listening. For example, you know, Chef Kwame uh, spoke a lot at different high schools in the Bronx, and one day. There was a literary agency agent sitting in that audience, and that's how he started his first book, which now is going to be turned into a movie, right? So you never know who's listening. So do pop-ups, even if the pop-ups are just for your friends and family, uh, you know, post it on Instagram. So be active in the space and find this balance between searching for your food, but also learn the traditional techniques because cooking is a language where you got to crack some codes and really understand once that language opens up, it's an incredible language that you can travel with anywhere in the world. Wonderful. Well, three rapid fire questions for you before we move into audience questions to kind of uh, uh, kick it off. So first question, one spice you could never live without. Oh, easy. Berbere comes from Ethiopia. It's everywhere <laughs> in Ethiopian food. Berbere would be the one. Yes. Um, okay. On that note, one dish from Ethiopia every American must try in their lifetime. I would say uh, Dorawat is the chicken stew that is just it's simmered. It's really a bunch of onions that you cook down for about an hour or so on low heat. And then you fold in um, chicken meat that you let, let it simmer with lots of Berbere and some uh, clarified butter is so delicious. Oh, wonderful. And last question before we move into audience questions. If you could have cooked for someone in history, who would it have been and why? Um, wow, I've, I've been very fortunate to cook for a lot of different people. So, uh, you know, for me, I never cooked for Diego Maradona, the soccer player. He just passed. <laughs> soccer player. Yes. And, uh, he was just such an icon to me growing up. So I never, I never met Diego. And um, I even tried to sneak in Diego's name when we were naming Zion. But my wife was like, no, <laughs> we're not <laughs> calling him Diego. <laughs> so yeah, it would probably be Diego Maradona. <laughs> the hand of God, as they say. Yeah, so there you go. Good. Nice. Uh, I've been to a couple World Cups, so yeah. I fully support that. Yes. 
All right. Well, um, let's move into some audience questions here. Um, we've got some some interesting ones from the audience. Yes. Um, Vendette here says, Chef Marcus, how do you suggest cooking eggplant and mustard and turnip greens? How can this taste delicious? Oh, well, the eggplant, I would put them on the grill with the skin on and grill them for a long time, put them down, then scrape them out. And the radishes, I would char in a pan, but, you know, cut them into pieces and then maybe just hit them with salt and char them, salt and a little bit of sugar. Uh, and was it mustard greens or what was the other one? Yeah, it was mustard and turnip greens. Yeah. So, I mean, we can make a great dish here. So your charged eggplant, I would puree it with some roasted garlic, olive oil, and that's your almost like uh, a puree, almost like a hummus. And then I would probably in the end just fold in some avocado just to get a little bit of creaminess into that. And then I would char my um, um, my vegetables season with salt and a little bit of sugar to caramelize them. And then the mustard greens, uh, I would just chop up and fold in. Now you have texture that is creamy, you have heat from the mustard greens, and you have bitter, this beautiful bitter and saltiness that's coming from um, the, the vegetables. So, yeah. You heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> um, Maybe some raw apples, just chop up some apples and Granny Smith just to get some natural water and, and, uh, and uh, sweetness in there. There you go. Um, the next question, uh, are either, are, are you following the, uh, the chefs of color on TikTok? Um, she says, I know chefs aren't usually fans of short form food content, but these folks have helped me a lot during quarantine. Um, I think it's a very nice question, but I, I just opened a restaurant during the pandemic <laughs> and I have my four and a half year old son with me. If I would find one more second in my day, I would <laughs> use it to sleep. Uh, I'm gonna give me a month. I'm gonna have to catch up. And then I'm going to look at what, what was the call? It was called chefs of color on TikTok. Yeah. Chefs of color on TikTok. Noted. But I'm not, but I might follow it now. Uh, I just got to, <laughs> but I, uh, yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, amazing. All right. You also heard that here first. Um, okay. Next, next question. Um, do you think the global kitchens serving food to the needy will continue post COVID-19 pandemic? I think what Jose and World Central Kitchen has really shown is that there is an enormous void and someone has to step in and fill this. And whether that's private or public, World Central Kitchen, has, there's an enormous need that we have to fix. And I think World Central Kitchen and Jose's group are well, very well suited to take over that role because they've been through so many different difficult situations and knows they've built up so much know-how on how to navigate and how to get from A to B to Z because it's such a logistics job. So I hope it does. And I know Jose is very committed to this. And I, I believe it will continue because the need is definitely there. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and on the same note of sort of, you know, things happening during the pandemic, beyond ordering takeout, what can everyday 
people do to help the industry right now, particularly um, Black Americans? Well, I, I love that. Thanks for asking. I think there's many ways to engage in your local community with restaurants, uh, for Black and BIPOC restaurants. Hey, you can buy some swag. Some restaurants have swags, right? Whether it's a hat or a T-shirt, that definitely helps <laughs> out. Whether that restaurant has a book or not. Um, you can also get your community, your Facebook friends or friends, to order from that place, take out, because that's a big deal. It becomes more orders, right? But then also, we all have different skills. If you come from the marketing side, volunteer. Say, hey, maybe we run your social media uh, platform for you for the next two months. If you have an economic background, maybe you help that restaurant with the books. Because the cooking part of the restaurant, very often each restaurant a chef got. But it's always these other 10, 12 jobs that it means to run a restaurant that gets expensive to outsource. There are so many different ways that you can go into your community, look for these incredible businesses, food businesses, and you can help out and be supportive. Ordering is one way, but also lending your skill is another way. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Nick, for that question. Uh, next question. What dishes are bringing you happiness and warmth during the pandemic? Uh, my wife and I, we cooked a lot more than ever. And it's like we ate a lot of vegetarian food. And it was something that I wanted to do and really explore more. So um, it was, you know, springtime was a great time to to cook radishes, to get uh, eventually going into the summer, obviously, our beautiful corn and beautiful tomatoes and so on and fall as well. So, um, you know, we became vegetarians for six months and it was great, it was a great experience. <laughs> that sounds very healthy. It was, um, it was delicious. Tara, I just wanted to, it was delicious and it was different and I had to challenge myself and it was great. Wonderful. Tara has a question um, around just food being political and she wanted a little bit more insight into uh, the extent that food and politics kind of interplay? Food and politics is definitely a very, very close relationship because um, by buying food, you make a decision on which farm are you buying it from, or even the way U.S. trades with food, right? Tariffs on cheeses and wines makes it harder for restaurants to sell it to, and then more expensive for the consumer. So who are we buying things from? I mean, everything around food is political, right? And it's a, it's a, I know it's a very, it's a big answer, but it truly, truly is, you know, from fair trade to how we label something. For, for years, we said, oh, I want to get some Belgian chocolate. Well, there's no cocoa beans in Belgium. They'll come from Ghana. Right there, you take the authorships out, out of Africa and your license is back into Europe, and all of a sudden you think it's a premium product. If that's not political, I don't know what is. <laughs> all right. I think we have one final question here, although if there are any more questions, keep them coming. Um, what are you most excited for as it relates to the future of Black cooking and the culinary talent that you've now highlighted throughout the course of writing this book? I'm excited about you know, the next 10, 15 years about food in America and black food in America, because 
there's more talented people than ever. There's more channels to tell those stories, right? Whether it's through books or through social media or through, you know, traditional TV. And there's more black people in leadership. You know, Don Davis is the head of uh, uh, Bon Appetit now. Tony Tipton Martin has a leadership uh, position. So there is rooms for many, many more black editors and executives in food, but we're also making big, big, big strides forwards. But I think it, it's got it's going to be tough coming out of COVID, but then it's going to get better and better. I see, I'm really I always lean towards positive stuff. I have to. So lots to look forward to. Well, I lied. We always have one final question, uh, as is informed tradition. So, what is your sixty-second idea to change the world? Through food. I mean, I, I think that um, changing the world through becoming greener, uh, to the intersection between green tech and consumer and guest, something we all have to work on because uh, we have to work on the environment and we have to make, make food much more fair and equal and equitable. And I think, you know, we're well positioned for it. Now we just got to go out and do the job. Wonderful. Well, Chef, I think that was indeed the last of the questions. So I wanted to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share with us the incredible knowledge and wisdom that this book has. Everybody, please go out and buy the book, The Rise. It's available now at your preferred bookstore, um, uh, including Marcus Books in Oakland, California. Um, Special thanks to them. Marcus Books for partnering on the program with us today. And um, yeah, I, I just hope that, you know, to, to what you have said in this program, that folks will really take in the breadth of the African diaspora and all of the Black culinary talent that is here, and that cooking uh, pasta is becomes as synonymous as, as, as cooking from, from any one of the recipes in your book. So uh, thank you so much, Chef. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you. And to those who are watching, if you'd like to watch more programs like this, um, please visit uh, commonwealthclub.org slash online, and you'll find many more programs like this. I'm Anjali, and thank you so much, and hope you all are staying safe. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at informsf.org.